Well, I would like to say welcome to everybody who is watching online, no matter where you are, apparently from Colorado to Texas to New Mexico to Missouri to Ohio and even parts as far away as Napomo and Orchid and Vandenberg Air Force Base in Lompoc. Welcome to you. I was, you know, this week I'm getting a little frustrated with this whole sheltering at home. I have a hard time not being around people and stuff. And in Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, I have learned what it means to be content in any situation. And I appreciate those words because he doesn't say that I'm content all about the situation or with the situation, but I've learned to be content in it. And the way he becomes content is by trusting that Jesus has his hand in everything and he will see us through all of this. So hopefully that's what we can all kind of do in in these moments. Uh, If you have a smart device in front of you, you can download an app. It is called YouVersion. If you click on YouVersion, then click More and Events. If you're not in Santa Maria, you can type in 93455 and we will come up by that in your phone. You get the sermon notes, the verses, the questions, the announcements, all we've kind of talked about so far today. Uh, My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors at Element. If you would like to, where you are, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It's what we normally do, but some of you might just be happier sitting on your couch. We'll see. Uh, This is John chapter 14, verse 6, and it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us and help us to understand your words in ways that they resonate with us so that we would in turn be able to speak the good news of your rescue to those around us. That we would understand what Easter is and what Easter means as we celebrate this day of your resurrection. And you would change our hearts and our minds so that they would love you as you have first loved us. That we'd be a people who honor you in all things. Amen. Uh, You can have a seat. Or stay seated, whatever you're doing. I don't know. So these are Easter services. Usually at Easter services, I try to be less offensive than other services. So that's my gift to you today. I'm going to try. It may not happen. I don't know. Uh, We're going to talk about Jesus and our celebration of Easter because Easter is all about him and what it means that we were people who were rescued when we didn't even realize we needed rescue. And that's one of the beautiful things about the gospel, that we celebrate God's coming to us when we're so lost that we didn't even realize that we were lost. We couldn't find our way home, so God comes to get us. So often we will say things like, I found Jesus, like Jesus was a scoutmaster with a busted compass, and he's lost in the woods, and we had to go figure out where he was. And the truth is really that we are the ones who are lost. It's so dark, we couldn't see our way, and Jesus comes to get us, and we see him, we're like, I found you, and he's just very gracious. He's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And Jesus is the one who rescues us. And in that rescue of us, today I want to talk about certain things that make it, I think, very vivid to the culture in which we live. I decided today to talk about John 14, 6, because last year I was driving down Main Street in Santa Maria, and I looked over and saw on this street sign someone had stapled or, or they taped this eight and a half by 11 white sheet of paper with big black block letters, and it said, I am the way, the truth, the life, Jesus. Like, Jesus made the sign and hung it on the street sign, which was really weird. I got another like three or four blocks, and I'm making a left-hand turn on a Broadway off of Main Street, and there's some young guys standing on the corner with signs with the bullhorn jumping up and down, and they're yelling, Jesus, repent. And I am fairly sure they weren't telling Jesus to repent, but they were telling all of us that we need to repent. 
And those two things within just a couple minutes of each other showed me that a lot of times, Christians, we don't know how to relate the gospel and the good things of the scriptures to one another, except sometimes in a very passive-aggressive way. I don't admit, we're currently going through this book in the New Testament called Acts. And you see the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts go into all these towns and all of these places. And he's trying to understand their cultures in ways that he can speak the gospel in a way that they will understand and resonate with. And many times yelling repent at people who have no idea what repent even means. Or maybe the people who are yelling repent don't even know what it means. It doesn't make any sense. It might make the people who are yelling it feel better, but not necessarily the people who are healing it, uh, hearing it. But sometimes we'll, be like, we'll think we're preaching for God, but we're not re- really preaching for God. We're just doing things so we ourselves feel better. Writing John 14, 6 on a piece of paper and sticking it to a street sign many times doesn't do anything except for the person who printed it because they feel like they're doing something. Now, in the scriptures, you'll see in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus does this. John the baptizer in Matthew chapter 3, they both do say to the crowds of the people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand. And you might say, but if it's good enough for Jesus, why isn't it good enough for those guys? Why isn't it good enough for me? Well, Jesus and John, they both spoke into a cultural context of this Jewish nation, this religion of Judaism, that would have understood the words that they said in a particular way. And when we run around with signs or we're just yelling slogans, it doesn't really help others to engage in the uh, message of the gospel. What it does is it helps a lot of people be able to tune out. And yes, I know from, from a very high view, God is sovereign. God can use anything to plant his message in others, even when we're being culturally unaware. But what we need to learn is in the scriptures, God comes to us in a particular way. And he speaks into a particular time. And the gospel is able to go into any culture. In the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, God does this work, and and these words are written by the Apostle Paul to a culture who would understand what those words meant, that God did things in the proper time, in the proper way. And different cultures, they will perceive things differently. So we need to understand many times the proper time and the proper way. Our default mode today is to think everybody interprets and sees and hears things the exact same way that we do, but they don't. It's like this. A couple years ago, I was doing a wedding for this couple. Uh, The bride and her family were from an Hispanic culture, and they were never on time. That's not a judgment. All I'm saying is... Time flows freer in certain cultural contexts than others. Now, the groom was a white dude, typical uptight white family. And again, not a judgment, just some cultures are stricter on their time commitments than other people. So the wedding, it's the wedding day, we're getting ready to go. And it is like 45 minutes after the invitations say that the wedding's supposed to start. Everyone's looking around, and then the bride and her family decide to show up. And so what happens is the white family, the, the Anglo family, is very upset at how rude all these other people were and not showing up on time. Then the Hispanic family is very angry at the white family for being so uptight because what they did is they put this event over the relationship. And what happened in the end is each of them moralized their own time orientation of their particular culture and misunderstood the other. And this happens all the time. It also happens in how we talk about Jesus and his words. Like, how about this? Have you ever had to sit through a totally boring sermon? 
And you're probably thinking, I'm doing it right now. Yeah, great, whatever, thanks. Uh, Sometimes, sometimes you get a sermon and it feels like it just went on way too long. And sometimes it feels like it was really, really short. That a a lot is our time orientation and how we see things. Like I have been told by people that I am long-winded. I have been told by other people that I stop when I'm just getting going. I've been told by by other people that I speak above their heads and need to bring it down just a little bit because I'm hard to understand. I've been criticized by others for being too basic at times. No one has ever said I talk too slow. Just throwing it out there. But really, there's no winning. And any time that we want to talk about the gospel, we want to preach to other people, we must contextualize those unchanging truths of who God is and his rescue of us in a way that connects and draws us all deeper into relationship with who he is, God's unchangeable truths. And we always do that into a given culture. There is nothing wrong with Jesus' words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's nothing wrong with the word repent. They are beautiful words. But our job is to help people understand what they mean, how those can practically relate to our lives. And that only happens when we are in relationship with one another, where we stop preaching at people or posting signs, but we actively engage our lives with each other. So what I want to do today, and yes, I know, long intro, but I want to explain these things, that maybe they can make a little more sense to you, so maybe they make a little more sense to our culture. And if you have been in a place where you didn't understand these things, or you drove down Main Street and Broadway and you saw this, maybe this will help you to understand really what those words are supposed to mean. So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, our culture has two problems with this. The first one is, they don't understand it, and the second one is, Jesus sounds very very exclusive here. And there's a reason for that. It's because he is. But we're going to start with that first part. What did a small group of 12 Jewish disciples under the Jewish law hear Jesus say when he says these words? So when he says, I am the way. Well, to a law following Jew, the way was the Torah. The way is the first five books of the Old Testament. Eventually, it encompasses the whole Old Testament, which we will call the Law and the Prophets. To them, the only way to God was through the Law. Psalm 119, verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the Law of the Lord. The actual Hebrew says it more like this, Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the Law of the Lord. And so into a Jewish mindset, the way is the law and the prophets. In Jewish tradition, the way that you find the way was through the Torah. In addition to all the teachings about ritual and behavior, the Torah is seen as the main source of information about the nature of God. And so by studying the Torah, you would see who God is in his person. And if you wanted to understand more about the nature of God, that's where you'd look. Israelites believed they could only draw near to God through the Torah with all of its various animal sacrifices and rituals. Jewish kids would grow up learning this and hearing this, that this is the way to God. Now, the second one is, I am the truth. To an Old Testament Jewish person, the truth was the Torah and the Law and the Prophets, the whole Old Testament. You are constantly reading in the book of Psalms, this Old Testament book of poetry, that God's commands are truth. And so to them, absolute truth could only be found in the Old Testament, in the Law and the Prophets. God is seen as the God of truth, and the Torah was said to be his thoughts and revelations about what he is doing in the world with the creation of the universe. All truth is meant to be compared with his truth as revealed in the Law and the Prophets. And the disciples, again, would have been taught that from when they were very small children. They would have grown up with this. And if something didn't line up with the truth of the scriptures, then it was not true. 
When Jesus says, I am the light. See if you can guess where I'm going with this, right? What did some Jewish people, you know, think when they heard, I am the light? What did they think of? The Torah. Hopefully you said that. You're like, Torah, law and prophets, Old Testament, all that. Yes. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses gives the Israelites a choice to make. He says, you can choose life and prosperity or death and adversity. And if you choose life, then you would walk in the way that was shown in the Torah and the law and the prophets because God is their life. For an Israelite to follow the law was to choose life because the Torah was. It was life. The disciples, again, had been taught this from childhood. And now Jesus is there. And Jesus is telling them that he is the life and that he is the truth and that he is the way into relationship with God. Jesus' comment, it would have been eye-opening and jaw-dropping for these disciples because ingrained to their thinking and their entire way of life, but no, no, this is only found in the Torah. And Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's where the last line comes from. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the law made it possible for an Israelite to approach God through sacrifice. The sacrifices, what it would do was it would cover their sin so they could go before God. When Jesus dies on the cross, Jesus just doesn't cover our sin with his blood. He takes it upon himself. He takes our sin away. So we get to go into relationship with God again. We get to be accepted. Now, as an Old Testament Jew, if you tried to approach God without following the law, you usually ended up dead. And here Jesus is saying, yeah, 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 I'm the way that you come into relationship with God. I'm the way you approach the Father. There are many modern Jewish teachers who still find Jesus' words very offensive. For Jewish people, God's dwelling place was in heaven and in the temple. Now, different cultural perspectives in the ancient world, the temples were the places where you would go because the gods had needs. And people would go and give gifts of food and whatever to the gods so the gods could have their needs met. But that wasn't the case in Israel. In Israel, God is constantly telling his people, I'm not a man that I have needs. You don't have to take care of me. And so for the Israelites, the whole idea of the temple was about relationship. It was about restored relationship that God had deemed to come into our midst to bring us to himself because man had broken relationship with God. And so this temple was established so God could and would meet with his creation. In the ancient world, there were lots of temples and lots of places. The Israelites, they had one temple because they had one God, and that temple was in Jerusalem. In that temple, there is one entrance into this place called the most holy place or the holy of holies where the presence of God would, would be said to dwell. And only one person could go in there. The average person could not go in there. If you went there, you would be in the outer courtyard. You would offer your sacrifice there. That's as far as you got to go. You could not enter into the direct presence of God. But here Jesus is saying that we, all of us, have a way into the presence of God. That we have all been invited into relationship with God because he made us and he loves us. And this is why Jesus comes and dies and rises from the grave. The relationship with God is not based on our rituals or sacrifice. But it's based upon what Jesus has done for us as way, truth, and life. It is amazing. We get to step into the presence of God. Having all that stood between us and him taken away by what Jesus did at the cross. Our relationship is restored only through Jesus. And that's a very expansive vision. I know when people say, oh, Jesus says he's the only way. But yes, Jesus says you are all invited. No one's cast out. You're all welcome to come in. And for the disciples to grasp this, it must have been exciting. Because from where they stood, no ordinary person had access to God the Father. 
But Jesus now says that because of what I am doing in my death and resurrection, you can have access to God. And the disciples didn't fully comprehend or understand that until after Jesus' death and ultimate resurrection that we celebrate on Easter. But once they fully understood that, man, they just go out in the world and they speak of this good news throughout the book of Acts, that God has come in Jesus to rescue us. And so when we read, no one comes to the Father except through me, so often what people take that and they read that as the word heaven. And Jesus doesn't say heaven there, because in Jesus' mindset, the kingdom of God or heaven would be about one thing, the rule and the reign of God in our life. It's about restored relationship with him. The clearest thing that all these people would have understood, especially Jesus, is that the way to the Father in heaven is life with God. What Jesus promises us is life uninterrupted with himself. And that doesn't come across on an eight and a half by 11 white sign with black block letters on it stuck to a street sign. Now, let me jump to this other word called repent, because we've talked about this before, but it's Easter. Hey, repent sounds great on Easter. So many people in our society, we misunderstood or stand this word repent. We think it's people in downtown New York City wearing these sandwich board signs that says, repent, COVID-19, the kingdom of God is near, you're all going to burn. That's what a lot of people think it is, Christians and non-Christians both. And yelling repent makes no sense, especially when you yell it and you don't understand what it is. So the best way to understand what repentance is and what repent means is look at a story that Jesus told. And the story is called the prodigal son. In this story, what happens is this young man goes to his father and he says, hey, can I have my inheritance? In a Middle Eastern culture, this is like saying to your dad, hey, I wish you were dead. But the dad loves his son and he takes his piece of inheritance and he gives it to his kid. Now, the whole community would be part of raising these funds of what this father had to give to his son. And so what people hearing this story would hear is he hasn't just broken the heart of his father, but the entire village as well. He's broken the trust. And so this kid runs to a distant country with all this money. He thinks everything's about him. He's like the guy with the golden ticket on American Idol. He's going to Hollywood. And so he's trying to, but then eventually his money does run out. And then what happens? Luke 15, verse 14 says, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. The word severe there, it's typically used of inanimate objects, and it means violent, violent. This is a violent famine. Like you would only see on TV if you watch something in South Africa with kids with distended bellies. But in this time, in this place, the government doesn't step in to intervene. There's no compassion international. There's no world vision. And when it gets this bad, the strong would then prey on the weak. They destroy the weak to stay alive. There are historical references to cannibalism and many children being sold into slavery. And the son now, he is weak and destitute. He's alone and afraid. But even at this point, he doesn't think about going back to his father. He doesn't want to go home. He starts trying to take odd jobs. He starts seeing pigs who are eating slop and thinking, well, maybe I could eat slop like that. He's doing all these things to destroy himself rather than to go back under what we would call repentance. He even formulates this plan in his head eventually like, okay, okay, I don't want to eat the slop. I do want to go home, so I got a plan. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to work it off. I'll just become a slave in my dad's house because even my dad's servants have plenty to eat. So he makes a speech in his mind. It's in Luke 15, verses 18 and 19. He says, I'm going to go to my dad, and I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What he says is, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to work it off. 
That's what I'm going to do. God doesn't have to do anything. I'm going to figure this out myself. And this is how a lot of people, I think many times, including people standing on the street corner, yelling and repent, approach God. I will work it off myself. I am going to grovel. I'm going to figure this out. It's when people say things like, if I went to a church, the walls would fall down or lightning would strike me. I think you're giving yourself too much credit. But, but this is why Christianity is so ridiculed by so many people who don't understand it. That we are to be a people who surrender all that we are to Jesus because we can't work it off. We can't come back and figure it out. God does it for us. To truly follow Jesus, we must understand our own lostness our own weakness. People who follow Jesus many times, they will start off like the younger brother. Oh, I've got to figure it out. Oh, I've got to work it off. Even being a slave is better than, than dying. This kid will eventually return. And eventually this will turn into true repentance. But where he first starts, that's his mindset. See, the idea behind repentance, it means coming home. Coming back to who God is calling us to be. But that's not where the kid is yet in the story. Now, I think that the father, I think the whole story actually centers around the father, but I think the father, because of his vast resources, he has never once left his son. Jesus doesn't say this, but I think he's keeping watch and tabs on his son. And when these things happen, the father doesn't step in and stop all of it. He doesn't stop him in the middle of famine from this kid starving or anything like that because he wants us to grow. Many times, pain and hardship is good for all of us like it's good for this kid. Why is COVID-19 happening? Because I don't know. I don't know, but I can tell you this, that God is good and God has plans for whatever we go through. I think the father's heart is broken for his lost son, but he doesn't stop the pain that the son is causing to himself. He doesn't remove the consequences because the father has a work that he is allowing this to do in his kid's life. And he wants his son to see his brokenness. And eventually the pain does bring about the intended results. And as soon as it does, the father acts, as I think the father has been acting on behalf of the son the entire time. And this is why when you get to verse 20, it tells you that the father knows the son is coming. It says, while he was still a long way off. He knows his son is coming home. He's he's looking down the road. He's going to be coming from that way because I know he's coming. The kid's got that dumb speech in his mind. This is what I'll do. This is what I'm going to say. I'm going to convince my father. But the father sees the son. And the father runs to his son. It says his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now Luke will use this word here called treko. And what it means in a lot of Greek writings is to incur extreme peril. This is the idea of what it means to run towards the sun. You push yourself past your limits, like the last mile of a marathon. Or for me, it's like the first 10 feet of a marathon. It's so out of a character for a patriarch of a family to do this. Uh, one writer said it'd be like seeing Jabba the Hut run. It just doesn't happen. But the father, what he does is he takes the humiliation upon himself because if the townspeople got a hold of the kid, they might stone him. So the father takes humiliation, runs to his kid, brings him home, doesn't let his son grovel, he restores him. And when Jesus tells this story, you see who he's telling it to. It says, sinners and religious people. But again, they're all from a Jewish mindset. They would understand the coming home as this idea of repentance. The religious leaders would probably hear Jesus' words like he's telling the Dumbo story, like an elephant who could fly. But the sinners would hear something else entirely. They would hear that God is so filled with love and compassion for his people that whatever distant country that we have been in, he has never stopped chasing after us and running towards us and loving us. Now, some people will say, oh, yeah, no matter where you are, the second you take a step towards God, he starts, starts running towards you. I don't think this is what it's saying at all. 
I think this is about you and I having all of these things in our head, telling God how we're going to work it off. And God's like, stop it. There's no deals you can make here. I have done it. I will rescue you. It's paid for. You're my child. You get to come home to me. And that's repentance. And that makes the word repentance much more a word of grace and beauty instead of a word of judgment and anger. See, people so miss the beauty of Jesus because in Christ, God has been running towards us as way, truth, and life. Not to turn us into slaves, but to adopt us as children. Hebrews 12.2 says we're to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Shame there, that's that word for humiliation. It's that on the cross, Jesus runs towards us. He endures humiliation. Jesus takes our sin, our humiliation, our death. In the story, when the father gets to the boy, Luke 15, verses 22 to 24, he's like, the kid's like, no, dad, I'm going to. And he's like, shut up, kid. Let me tell you. He's like, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son, from this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What the father does in joy is he throws a party that Everyone is invited to. Why? My son was lost. My son is now found. My son was dead. He is now alive. The message of Jesus and repentance is that all of us get to come home to a party. And have you ever defined repentance in your mind as a party? Do you think the people stand on the street corner and say, Oh yeah, repentance. Woo, let's have a party. I highly doubt it. See, this is the idea that maybe you have made some bad choices in your life. Maybe you've squandered all the gifts that God has ever given you. Well, you know what? You still get to come home. That's the beauty of repentance. Maybe you've stolen or cheated or been through a terrible relationship nightmare, and it's all your fault. Or maybe it's not your fault. You get to come home. Maybe you have done things that you never want to say out loud, that you want to hide from everybody else. Well, God knows those things, and God is still calling you to come home. Maybe you feel like you're in a far-off country. Maybe you even attend a church service every week, wherever you are. But you are trapped in something that has its hooks in you that are so deep you can't see a way out. But there is. God says, you get to come home. See, the story explains the reality of repentance. And it's meant to show us the goodness of the Father and the Son and the great salvation we've all been offered as Jesus as way, truth, and life. This is what the understanding of Easter is supposed to bring about, the reality in our context and in our culture. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, says the story really shows you salvation in four ways. He says, first off, that salvation is experiential. It is meant to be a feast that engages our senses of sight and sound and smell and taste. He says, salvation is material, that Jesus promises to eat a meal with us in his ultimate kingdom. Like the climax of God's story is not him turning us into pudgy little babies with wings with harps that sit on clouds all day. It's a feast, like the story. There is joy, and there is dancing, and there is laughter, and it is beautiful with choice wine and good food. It is that salvation that is individual because he saves us personally. We are the sons who have run away, and God brings us back to himself. But salvation is also communal in that it is a feast, a party. I mean, a party is communal by nature. I mean, you can't really just have a party by your... I'm COVID-19, right? You're probably trying to have a party by yourself, but you can't. A party's with a lot of people, and we are invited, but we're not the only one there. And by God inviting us to the party, it becomes an offer of inheritance and friendship. 
and when we stand on a corner and we yell out words like repent or we staple a sign that says way, truth, and life, it doesn't make life-changing sense until you understand it in our context. That no matter where we are, no matter where we've been, our God is calling us home to himself. Jesus says for all time that he is the way. His life, his death, his resurrection through which we can finally know the truth about our sin and who we are, but also the truth about God and his grace and himself. Through Jesus, we learn that his death on the cross could become our death to express our forgiveness of sins, that his resurrection could become our hope, that his community could also become our family. How does Jesus become way, truth, and life? Well, he becomes our righteousness for us. He dies and resurrects, and that's what we celebrate on Easter. And we get to repent and come home and live life with him. And I don't know where you are or where you've been in your life. I don't know what things have been done to you or what things you have done to others. What God is calling you and me as a people to do is simply come home. That is repentance. We get to come back to what he has done because he is the one who has rescued us. This is the whole point of when we say the gospel is good news. It is good news because it is God's rescuing of us. And so we have been invited into the family of God to be his people because of his own goodness. And typically on a Sunday morning, what we do at Element is we invite you to communion right now as a way to remember what he did with his death and ultimate resurrection. Now, you can do that at home. Uh, You can do it with your family. We are going to play some songs in just a moment. You can do it during that. But the whole point of communion was symbolic to remind us over and over and over on a constant basis what Jesus went through to rescue and save us as he brings us back to himself. So I'm going to invite the band to come up. And as they do... Guys, if you need prayer, I would invite you to go ahead and write those in the comments on the side that you can send it or send an email to connectedourelement.org. Maybe, again, you're in a place today where you feel like you've run so far from God or you're trying to work it off or trying to figure out all the ways to work yourself back into God's graces so that you can be his slave forever. And God calls you instead to be his son to be the one who who steps back into what he has already done, to trust him for the kindness and grace that he has given to us. Because I invite you as a people to fully trust and engage what God has said and what God has done, because he is good. And again, if you need prayer, I encourage you to do that. Uh, There is some, uh, not some food here, but there's food at your house in your kitchen. You grab something, maybe hang out with other people. Maybe look who's on the side of your computer screen. And maybe, hey, you guys want to go and have lunch or dinner together and hang out a bit together? You know, maybe start to have a little bit of conversations with others because of the, you know, the notes that we'll send out in the stuff that you're reading through. And so maybe, you know, sit down and ask some questions to one another. What is true repentance? You know, what is grace? What, is, what, is, what does that look like? And talk about what true repentance means as we get to be a people who come back to who God has always called us to be a people who are fully undone by his grace and his rescue. If you would like to give, uh, you can still do that online. Uh, you can mail, mail checks to uh, Element at 4890 Bethany Lane, Santa Maria, California, 93455. Uh, we still give, as I keep saying, to all of our church planters around the world. We're doing a lot of different things about helping people in our community right now as well. And so if you would like to give, we'd love for you to be able to still continue to do that because our God gave so much to us. Guys, repentance, Jesus' way, truth, and life means so much to exactly where we are today. So let's be a people who live in that great salvation that we have received in him. Let's pray.
Father, this morning, we thank you for what the idea of Easter actually means. That we do not need to live as a dead people. We can live as a people who get to come alive because you have given us life. That you have sought us and chased us down. That even times when we are shaking our fist in your face and running from you, still, you seek for us. Father, have us understand that we are the ones who so often are lost. And that you are the one who finds us. And teach us to live lives of being found. And as we speak of your goodness and grace, not to speak just in slogans, but speak in ways of how you have changed our lives, of how you have come to rescue us, of how you are the one who has changed us. And we do that in ways that make sense to those around us because you are good and restorative. Have us be a people who live in the great grace that you so constantly provide us. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.